Okay. Each of you are going to get a turn. We're going to give you a duo, and you are going to tell us which one of you is more like the other member of the duo. Okay. 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 Pat. Okay, Patrick, you're first. Chewy and Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's more like Chewy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy. Stay tuned for more fun and science talk on today's episode of the Farm to Table podcast. Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world. And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table Podcast. We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S. Also known as MSD everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories. And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group. Each week, we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it, and also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. The focus of today's episode is our conversation with Kevin Maloney and Patrick Fear, who've published a series of papers together at Merck on new methods in the last few years. Yes, I'm super excited and really jazzed to have Patrick and Kevin on today. And I cannot wait to hear how they have gone about selecting problems and having just a really strong external influence. Let me introduce Patrick. Patrick Fear hails from Iowa, where he obtained his BS in chemistry and also biochemistry from the University of Northern Iowa. Despite what folks may think, he did grow up on a farm. So I grew up in suburbs, not on a farm. Sure, sure thing, Patrick. After undergrad, he traveled east to obtain his PhD with John Hartwig at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana and eventually moved with John to Berkeley. But like many of us, Patrick has debated that age-old question, academia versus industry. And I took this opportunity to ask him what drew himself to Merck. So early on in grad school, I thought sort of the only path was academia. You know, you're, you're in an academic setting and a lot of my peers, you know, had aspirations of going into academia. So honestly, that didn't really resonate with me. And I was actually pretty demotivated early on in grad school. And then, you know, after a year or two, I started kind of coming across process chemistry papers and reading specifically about Merck, you know, and kind of the innovative chemistry going on to you know, for practical solutions to real problems. And that's actually what motivated me to actually continue doing my PhD. And, you know, as a third and fourth year student, I got more exposure to Merck and process chemistry in general. And it really, you know, it was very exciting to me. So that's sort of what pointed me in the direction of, you know, coming to Merck. And it must have also been the fact that you knew that you were going to be my, like my office mate. You <laughs> exactly. were like, you were like, I'm going to be able to sit with her and it's going to be really sweet. Yeah. It was, so. it was better than my wildest dreams. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Kevin is originally from Atlanta, Georgia and did his undergrad as a division one baseball player at Stetson university. And he followed that up with a PhD in chemistry at MIT with Rick Danheiser. What's interesting about Kevin and links to Patrick as well is that 
when I asked him what got him interested in Merck, he also highlighted that the Danheiser group used to highlight publications from the Merck process team. So Professor Danheiser had overlapped with Skip Vallant, who was a previous, I guess, vice president at Merck. They overlapped in the Cory group. And Rick always had a huge interest in Merck process chemistry. And what he liked to do was at random group meetings, he would always pick a Merck process chemistry paper and have someone review it at one of our group meetings. So I always just, from my first year there, I just was really impressed with all the nice work being done at Merck and especially in the process chemistry group. And I knew at that point that that was where my interests lie. Using chemistry to make new medicines just sounded awesome. It is actually quite incredible how much these Merck chemistry papers can have an impact on an individual. As you just heard from Patrick and Kevin, but also earlier from both myself and LC, we can distinctly recall a Merck paper that showcased innovative science and ultimately led us to Merck. But now we continue to pay it forward, if you will, by not only publishing ourselves, but also championing the values of publishing, which are inspiring and influencing the field, helping with our own career progression and those of our colleagues, and ultimately showcasing the scientific excellence that we uphold at Merck. Exactly. So we'll play you some of our discussion with Kevin and Patrick, and hopefully that'll give you some insights into their science and also their partnership. Before we dig into the chemistry that you have developed, Elsie and I have some questions and like a little fun quiz to kind of get everyone in the mood, if you will. Sounds good. Can't wait. All right, Patrick, I have a question for you. So I've known Kevin for a long time. You've been working with him for a few years now. What's the most annoying part of working with Kevin on these things? <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm a pretty tidy guy. You know, a lot of people come by my bench and they think no one works there. So, you know, when Kevin comes in, it's, it's like a tornado hits the glass. <laughs> you know, it's, it's extremely messy. So I say, you know, kind of cleaning up after him is probably the, the more annoying part, but it's fun. It, it's fun. Different styles of working. You know what LC is really funny about that? I was going to say the best part about wearing with Patrick is he always cleans up after me. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess let's flip the opposite, right? So Kevin, what's the most annoying part about working with Patrick? Is that he doesn't clean up fast enough for you? Or? <laughs> I think one of the things that Patrick is Patrick moves so fast with the writing part of the process. And it always makes me feel like it's come so naturally to him. I'm always so jealous and makes me feel like I have to work extra hard to keep up with him. It's like we go from an idea to a few cases and I feel like Patrick already has a draft of the paper written and I haven't even wrapped my head around what are the final cases we're going to be doing. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so clearly you guys spend a lot of time together, but I have a little kind of quiz here to kind of gauge how well you really know each other. Uh-oh. Okay? Uh-oh. So I'm going to ask each of you the same kind of question, and we're going to see. Okay. So Danny, Kevin, one quick question. Yes. Is it okay if Patrick and I are texting throughout this back and forth? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> okay. Just make I knew, sure I know I, the rules. Oh, but you're a rule breaker, so what does it matter, right? Just you do you. Okay. Okay, Kevin, on your papers, it says Patrick S. Fear. What does the S stand for? Steven. Patrick, is that right? It's Scott. 
<laughs> ah, good shot. Okay. Yeah, good, good try. Okay, Patrick, same question. Kevin M. Maloney, what does the M stand for? I think it's Matthew. Oh, darn it. He's right. Now I feel bad. <laughs> okay. Kevin, where is Patrick's favorite lunch spot? Because it is lunchtime now, so just thought it would be appropriate. Taco Bell. That's right. That's one of the many favorite. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Patrick, same. Where is Kevin's favorite lunch spot? Uh, probably Chick-fil-A. That's right. Great job, guys. I would say I think Patrick is the better friend. I think he knows <laughs> Kevin a bit more than what Kevin knows Patrick, but that's all good. Without further ado, I think we're going to dive into some chemistry and LC is going to lead the charge with the phenol papers that you guys have had. Yeah, so I came up with a few questions here. I mean, obviously, this is a collection of papers that you guys have published over the last few years and actually has been cited a few times and it's been cited as the Maloney fear reaction. So Patrick, I'm curious, how does it feel to have a named reaction named after you? Oh, that's pretty sweet. I'm a huge fan of name reactions in general. So one of my favorite books is the strategic applications of name reactions. So yeah, it's an honor that people call it that. I don't know how many people call it that, but it's pretty cool. Do you think that you're going to be able to make the book? Laszlo said he would put us in volume two. Really? Yeah. Hmm. We make sure to keep reminding him too. Yeah, we remind him every day. <laughs> <laughs> They have them on speed dial. Yeah. Hey, when's volume two coming out? Yeah. All right, Kevin, you know, you mentioned this a little earlier, but can you kind of give us a little bit of a genesis of how this idea came about and how you even decided to work on this in the first place? Yeah. So my early career in one of the DBC projects. As an aside to our listeners, DPC stands for Discovery Process Chemistry, and this is a process chemistry group that sits between discovery chemistry and also process chemistry. We were making amino isoxazoles, and one of the byproducts was the phenol, so the amino phenol in this case, because they were pyridine amino isoxazoles, or even the, the benzene version. And for a while, one of the theories was that was coming from just residual water, because it was really tough to run these reactions completely anhydrous. And I remember chatting with Patrick the day we ran these experiments, and we're like, this is really interesting. It runs better in water. You don't see any hydrolysis to give the phenol. So what's going on? And when we were drawing the mechanism, Patrick came up with a brilliant suggestion that potentially it was a Lawson rearrangement. And it was brilliant in the sense that when most people think of the Lawson rearrangement, you're always using it to get like an amine product. You rarely think about what the byproduct of that is. But in this instance, it was a phenol. So we were excited by this. We, we quickly thought about maybe this is a way we could make phenols. And that led to the first paper. You can do an SNAR reaction, then a Lawson rearrangement to make phenols. I want to follow up on that, Patrick. I mean, it's pretty interesting that you guys took a side reaction of a byproduct, typically, and found an application in, in a problem of relevance. Can you tell me a little bit more about like why you thought the phenol forming reaction was actually interesting enough to pursue as a paper? Tell me more about your thought process there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of people just kind of assume you can take electron poor aryl halides and treat them with hydroxide and get the phenol, but that's not actually the case. So a lot of times people use protected alcohols or cyanolase and then you deprotect. 
So the hydroxamic acid is a much better oxygen nucleophile. So we thought that this would do SNAR more easily than hydroxide, and then the rearrangement would occur under the same conditions. So I would say we kind of realized where the side product in Kevin's reaction was coming from early in the day, maybe around 10 a.m. And I think throughout the day, maybe it was, you know, mulling around in our mind. And then, you know, we talked again at like 4 p.m. We're like, oh, maybe we should use this as a method to make phenols. So I don't think it was immediately obvious, but ultimately it, it was sort of a nice application of a side reaction. Yeah, I remember that walking into to Kevin's office and you guys were kind of on the board drawing this stuff. So it's kind of an interesting progression. I think often when you read a paper, you sort of don't see the genesis of how the ideas come about. And in some cases, it takes a long time, but it was kind of cool that in the course of a few hours, you guys came up with this. One of the things that I want to follow up with you, Patrick, on this is, I mean, obviously, you guys developed this as an AR reaction with electron deficient aryl fluorides and aryl halides, but this ended up turning into a series of papers, and I think there's at least three publications here. So can you sort of elaborate on how this evolved over time, and, and what are some of the other methods that spawned from this to make phenols? Yeah, so, you know, the first method, the SNAR one, it works really well in terms of, you know, function group tolerance and scope, but you have to have electron-poor aryl halides. So, you know, of all the aryl halides people might want to use, you know, only maybe 30% would fall into that category. So you know, the limitation with unactivated aryl halides was pretty apparent. So, you know, then we thought, how could we overcome this? And then, you know, the use of either palladium or copper to do oxidative addition and promote reaction that way. So we tried just extending the chemistry exactly as it was with palladium or copper catalyst, but we saw all sorts of issues with O versus N aerylation. And then the loss and rearrangement also didn't work very well if your aromatic group wasn't activated as a leaving group. So then we kind of went back to the drawing board, and we liked this idea of this kind of hydroxide surrogate, as we started naming it, where we have this O-N bond that we would cleave. So then, you know, we kind of thought, what else we could use? And this is where the benzaldehyde oxime came in. So again, you have a, a great oxygen nucleophile, and then once the product forms, you can fragment it under the same reaction conditions to cleave the NO bond. So that's kind of how the second, you know, iteration of the hydroxide surrogate came about. And then, you know, using the tools at Merck, the high throughput screening, the microbial plates for screening palladium catalyst allowed us to get the hits pretty quickly. I think we, we saw the potential for a nice method to make phenols. I think from that first paper, we were so encouraged by the number of people within the Merck community that had success with the SNAR, that we had some projects where people used it. We had lots of medicinal chemists reaching out, asking for the conditions, asking for the reagents. What we also became aware is if we checked the electronic notebooks is, the SNAR was having success, but when we looked at the types of substrates people were trying, there were some we knew would never work just based on the electronics, but it became apparent that there really was a need in the discovery space. You know, after maybe the first six months of putting that on a mic post and then publishing it, I think it was like 500 people had tried running the reaction. So for our listeners, Mike is not just some guy down the hall. Mike is also the Merck Information Knowledge Exchange Platform. It's essentially an internal blog where people can share their ideas and best practices. It's the chem archive of Merck chemistry. So it became apparent to us that phenols were very popular in the discovery space, and that late-stage functionalization was really prevalent in that space. And if we could come up with a general method where you can make any phenol, that could have a huge impact. Okay, well, that was really great. 
phenols are cool, but so are sulfonamides, right? So let's pivot a little bit. But before we start, I guess I want to tell our listeners that you too have three papers regarding sulfonamides, two Jack's papers that were published in 2019, and then a recent org scent that was published in 2020. So Patrick, can you help us set the sulfonamide stage, if you will? And I guess describe in layman's terms what a sulfonamide is and give a little bit of history about them. Yep. Great question. Sulfonamides, I think, are one of the most common functional groups in marketed drugs and in drug development in general. So, you know, these are a lot of times in antibiotics, you know, these sulfa drugs that are so prevalent. But the one thing is that sulfonamides are not really functional groups in the sense of using them as functional handles in organic chemistry. So Kevin and I, again, this kind of general idea of using sulfonamides as functional groups that you can use in late stage functionalization came about because he was working on a program that had a sulfonamide. And the question became, these are so prevalent, is there any way we can actually use these as a functional handle? And that's how sort of these ideas came about to use these as functional groups that could be useful since they're so prevalent. And I will say that, you know, sulfonamides, you know, in the Merck building block collection, the number of sulfonamides is actually on par with bronic acid. So I think people always think of Bronic acids as you know one of the most versatile and prevalent functional groups, but if we could make sulfonamides as similar utility, then you know there'd be a whole order of magnitude more compounds available. Yeah, that's great. And there's actually a few things I want to kind of dive into a bit more there. But first, in both of your papers, you call a sulfonamide a terminal functional group, which I guess kind of reminded me of like John Travolta's career before Pulp Fiction. A bit. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, where did that term come from? I think one thing we realized, Danny, was we had this one program where we had the primary sulfonamide. And when you thought back about medicinal chemistry doing SAR around it, you realized that they made other sulfonamides, they made other sulfones, sulfonic acids, a variety of things. And when you really dug back into the way they made them, is they never made them from the primary sulfonamide. They'd go all the way back to the beginning, they'd put a sulfone in, they'd run through the last five steps to make, you know, different sulfones. Or if it was a sulfonamide, they'd have to go back to the beginning where there's the sulfonyl chloride, add in some other amine, carry that all the way to the end. So it just dawned on Patrick and I that when medicinal chemists would look at sulfonamides, obviously you'd make a primary sulfonamide first, right? That would be your first sort of make it, see if it has activity. If it does, you then are going to say, ooh, Let's look at other sulfonamides. Let's look at sulfones. Let's look at sulfonic acids. And if you looked back in the history, every project would then be like, okay, we have to go all the way back to the beginning to make all these other functional groups because there was nothing in the literature for taking a primary sulfonamide and converting it into other sulfonamides or sulfones. So that's kind of how we looked at it as a terminal functional group, meaning once you made it, you were done. There was no way to take that and basically branch out into a variety of other examples. Yeah, so I guess building a bit more on that. So Patrick, I guess in your first paper, you focus primarily on primary sulfonamides. What types of transformations were you able to show that were amenable to this quote-unquote terminal functional group? Yeah, so the method was basically taking primary sulfonamides and then removing the NH2 group under formally reductive conditions. So you generate a sulfinate. And the sulfinates, you can really do whatever you want with them. So there's a pretty rich chemistry with sulfonates. So they're great nucleophiles. So you can engage them with 
carbon electrophiles or nitrogen electrophiles. And you can also do some desulfonylative cross-coupling reactions. You actually lose the SO2 group to make, you know, biaryl compounds or potential to do radical chemistry as well. So I think, you know, in some cases you can take a primary sulfonamide and you can completely remove the entire group from that. Yeah. And what I liked about your paper is that you kind of mentioned a lot that this is really amenable to late stage functionalization and definitely, you know, in the discovery chemistry space, being able to take a really commonly readily available handle and diversify in the ways that you did in that paper by forming like CC bonds and changing out the nitrogen for a carbon and whatnot, I think was pretty impactful. And so throughout that first paper and also into your second Jack's paper on secondary sulfonamides, you really emphasize that your methods are amenable to benchtop preparation. Why do you consider this your North Star when you're developing a condition? And what other kind of conditions or practicalities do you take into account when you are developing a method? Yeah, so really, you know, our goal in all of these side projects is to develop chemistry that people actually use. And I think one barrier to people using chemistry is if it's air sensitive or if it requires cryogenic conditions or some hazardous reagents. So we're really focused on developing chemistry that was so simple to run that one, we could run it ourselves. <laughs> that was criteria one. And then yeah. you mean you mean <laughs> Kevin could run it himself, right? <laughs> yeah, so that, that Kevin could run them. <laughs> and then also that, you know, people could reproduce our chemistry and, you know, use it on their substrates. And I think, you know, the conditions we identified were also extremely mild so that the scope of the reaction was also very broad. So you could tolerate essentially any functional group that you would come across. So I think those are kind of our guiding principles is easy to set up, simple reagents, preferably commercially available, and, you know, broad functional group tolerance. I think the other part being in process chemistry, you quickly realize that those are also the type of reactions you want to run on manufacturing scale, right? The simplicity of setting it up makes it very elegant from a process chemistry point of view. The simpler it is, the less chance there can be mistakes. Fantastic. So, Kevin, in the same year as your JAX NHC paper that was in January of 2019, so the first deamination, you then, 10 months later, had published your second JAXA paper in this area on secondary sulfonamides. And so I really like this paper because it kind of showed the sulfonamide as a divergent handle, so you could functionalize in a bifurcated way. Could you, I guess, describe this paper for all of our listeners? And I guess tell us how you were able to quickly get it out the door. I think what was really exciting about this was the sulfonamide paper, the primary sulfonamide, the first one, I was shocked at how broad the substrate scope for that was. To be frank, it worked on everything we tried. Any of the reactions that were lower yielding, that was more of like an isolation issue than really a yield or conversion issue. So I think we were so excited about how well that worked in the broad substrate scope. We really wanted to see what we could do next. And what became apparent when we look through some known drugs in the literature is there are a lot of secondary sulfonamide drugs. And what was interesting is we always assumed the sulfonate part would be the more valuable. What we quickly realized is in some cases, the amine part was actually the more valuable part. So the thought became, is there a way you could break the sulfur-nitrogen bond and give yourself that choice? What's the more valuable piece? What piece could you then modify for late-stage functionalization? Or could you modify both? Maybe you do it, you break the nitrogen-sulfur bond, and then you can functionalize both of them further. 
So I think we were just really excited. We were coming off sort of the high of the first paper, and we just immediately ran to the secondary sulfonamides. Patrick, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think Kevin captured it pretty well. So I think, you know, also enabling us to get it out quickly was, you know, there was a summer intern that came last year, Su Hong Kim. So he was a graduate student with Dean Toss, and he came in and really helped us kind of like flush out the substrate scope and further refine the conditions and demonstrate on a, a wide variety of substrates. Okay, so a few more questions about sulfonamides, and then we can kind of pivot and start to close this out. One is that in both of your papers, you have very nice substrate scopes, which I think kind of hopefully help the academic readership understand the types of molecules that we like methods to be compatible with. And so how do you go about designing your substrate scope and what resources do you use at Merck to do so? Yeah, so, you know, I think in grad school, I was definitely guilty of this is, you know, demonstrating a substrate scope with very simple substrates, you know, methyl, ethyl, propyl substituted aromatic Cyclohexyl. group. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, when I was a grad student, there was, you know, I'd meet with industry people and they'd say, oh, does this work on pyridine substrates or with the free amines and so on? So, you know, I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but now that I've been at Merck, you see the types of molecules that people actually work with. And they're very heteroatom dense. They're complex in terms of physical properties as well. So we wanted to demonstrate our chemistry on kind of real world substrates. And we're fortunate that Merck has a tremendous collection of compounds that, you know, you can search by functional group and just kind of order whatever you want and it'll show up and you can test your chemistry on those. So, you know, it really facilitated kind of demonstrating the substrate scope because we didn't have to prepare all these substrates that may be the case in academic labs. Yeah, that definitely speeds up the process, not having to, you know, go back five steps just to make a substrate. And sometimes you kind of fall into the rut of that your products are simpler than your substrates, which is always a direction that you don't want to be going into. Okay, last question. This year, you guys both published a org synth on the deaminative functionalization of sulfonamides. And I guess I would like to hear Patrick's thoughts first, and then Kevin can jump in. And what the motivation was for making an org synth prep and overall, I guess, the role that industry plays in not only authoring, but also reviewing these types of papers. Yeah, we've published, I guess, together one org synth so far. We have another one lined up for the phenol chemistry. So I think, you know, org synth is nice because it kind of shows that your method has been validated by, you know, another group and that someone else can reproduce your chemistry. And it also shows scalability. So I think that reaction we probably ran on, you know, maybe 10 gram scale, and we showed that you can directly isolate the product through crystallization. So I think it kind of shows, you know, when you see a method in org sin, you have confidence that it can be reproduced. So I think we want to show that, I guess, one, our chemistry is reproducible, and also that it also is another venue to get the chemistry out there for people to see if they may have missed the initial publication. And then, you know, at Merck, We've historically had people on the board of editors, so now it's Kevin Campos, who is the head of our department. So he plays an active role in OrgSyn, really encourages people to submit to OrgSyn and check OrgSyn procedures. The two of you are starting to be quite the dynamic duo at Merck, and Danny and I were wondering how you compare to other famous (laughs) duos. This is going to be so good. Okay, each of you are going to get a turn. 
we are going to give you a duo and you are going to tell us which one of you is more like the other member of the duo. Okay. 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 Pat. Okay. Patrick, you're first. Batman and Robin. I would say I'm, I'm probably Batman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. My turn. Kevin, Buzz Lightyear and Woody. Buzz Lightyear and Woody. I'd say I'm more like Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Is that more because you're more like Buzz Lightyear or more because Patrick's more like Woody? <laughs> yeah, I think Patrick's more like Woody. That's a great... <laughs> I think Patrick's a lot more like Woody. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, Kevin, Tom, and Jerry. Hmm. Yeah, Patrick's more like Jerry. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I like how you just totally flipped this yeah. <laughs> onto what is Patrick. Okay. <laughs> okay, Patrick, it's time for revenge, and this one is going to be sweet. Are you yep. ready? Okay. Chewy and Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's more like Chewy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one last one. Kevin, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy. I'd say Patrick's more like Shaggy. I'm more like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. I think we're out of time. This was a lot of fun, guys. I really appreciate you being one of the, our first guests on the podcast. It was a, it was great chatting with you, and, and we look forward to a chem archive by the end of the year from you guys on this. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Farm to Table podcast. This would not have been possible without our fabulous producer, Mark Partridge, and listeners like you. Be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show, as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show. If you find yourself craving even more info, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Danny the Chemist, and LC can be found at, at, at Dr. LC Squared. But of course, our show also has a handle and that is at farm to table pod farm with a ph in case you were wondering where you'll find some behind the scenes action future episodes and sneak peeks and likely some random posts posts about chemistry snacks and where whatever else of course uh we'd love to hear from you so please uh, interact with us on twitter feel free to post any chemistry papers merc chemistry papers that uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around so stay tuned, folks. Because on the next episode of the Farm to Table podcast... So when I think about this, I always like to think about how I describe it to my grandma. And <laughs> um, no disrespect to any grandmas out there. Mine just doesn't happen to be a chemist. So that's kind of what I use as a point of reference. And also I grew up with her. So um, we're, we're trying to make hexagons with a nitrogen atom in them. So if you can picture that in your mind, that's what we're <laughs> trying to do. Uh, and the particular hexagonal nitrogen molecules that we're making have aryl groups on them. So I, I already, not simple anymore, but that's about as good as I can do. Uh, <laughs> Grandma's already lost, but that's she's, fine. She's, we'll figure out when yeah. this is done.